your Bible, I would invite you to take it and turn with me to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. We come today to, uh, well, what's designated in your order of worship there as the fourth part of a series of introductory sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. This is actually the fifth sermon, but it's really the fourth main point. The title for today's sermon, or the subtitle there, Who Do You Say That I Am? And this is taken from our text here in Matthew chapter 16, which we will work through here in a few moments. We've been off for a week here. We had the wonderful opportunity last week to hear Brother Tim Decker teach Sunday school for us and uh, to preach for us. And if you were not here last Lord's Day, I would encourage you to, uh, to find that sermon uh, it was a wonderful sermon, very encouraging. I uh, <clears throat> reach back a little bit here as we uh, kind of want to pull together several things that we've done over the last month or almost month and a half now in introducing the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew has pointed us to several realities or several glorious realities regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world Matthew has shown us that the coming of Jesus into the world is the dawning of a new creation. We've seen there in the opening words of the book of Matthew that it is a day of new beginnings. It's a day of Genesis. The opening two words we saw there in Matthew 1.1 that this is a book of Genesis. It's the book of the Genesis, the book of the beginnings of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a day of messianic hopes being fulfilled where the people had long anticipated the dawning of a new day, a day when God would send an anointed servant, when God would send the Messiah and begin this worldwide rebuilding program. We saw how the Hebrew Old Testament ends with the book of 2 Chronicles where the temple is not rebuilt and they're still looking for that coming day when God will send his Messiah, his anointed servant to come and build the temple once again. We saw that the prophets had announced a future day that is kind of characterized as that day of the Messiah, the day of the servant of the Lord that is seen in a man by the name of Zerubbabel. We looked at him in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah. We're looking at Zerubbabel as a messianic figure, a foundation layer, a temple builder. But we saw that by the time of the closing of the Old Testament period, that reality had still not come to fruition. The Jewish people were still looking for a day when a long-awaited Messiah would come it would lay a strong foundation for God's people and would begin to build God's temple once again. Well, this kind of all brings us to Matthew's central message, and we want to unpack this today in looking at a text in Matthew chapter 16 that God, in the sending forth of Jesus as the long-anticipated Messiah, is restoring his people from their long exile, bringing them under the rule of Jesus as their king, the son of David, and expanding the blessing to encompass all the peoples of the world, showing Jesus to be the son of Abraham. Let me read that statement again and just kind of think with, think with me in your own mind about what we've seen in these weeks together. God, in the sending forth of Jesus as the long-anticipated Messiah, is restoring his people from their long exile. He is bringing them under the rule of Jesus as their king, showing him to be the son of David. And he is expanding the blessing to encompass all the peoples of the world because Jesus truly is the seed of Abraham. Now, as we come back to our study of the book of Matthew today and, and want to kind of draw some things 
together, kind of like uh, when you bend down there and tie your shoes and you, you forget to pull all those other laces up and you have like, you know, tight the top, but all those other things are just kind of flying out there. I want to see if we can kind of tighten up all those things and, uh, and tie off the top of it, uh, maybe to help us make our way into the book itself, Lord willing, next week. Several weeks ago, I think it was back on the 10th of September, when we began our introduction to the book, I mentioned to you the structure of the book of Matthew. And I want to, I want to come back to that structure today and, and lay it out. So if you're a, if you're a note taker, you might jot a few things down. Overall, with the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew lays out in three distinct parts. I want to take you back, keep your finger there on Matthew chapter 16, or mark it, we'll, we'll come back to it later on. I want to take you to two verses in the book of Matthew. One is in chapter 4, and one is back there again in chapter 16. The opening chapters of Matthew, chapter 1-1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 16, uh, serve the purpose of introducing us to the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Matthew wants us in these opening chapters to become acquainted with Jesus as Matthew sees him. Now, he is not acquainting us with how Matthew saw him when he was with him on the earth. In other words, Matthew was, a, was an apostle. He was one of the first 12 disciples. And he walked with Jesus throughout those years that he was here, maybe three or four years on the earth. And Matthew, like all the other apostles, was growing in his understanding of who Jesus was. We'll see more in a moment about what it is that Matthew came to conclude. But by the time Matthew is older and he looks back on the time that Jesus was here and he writes his gospel account he is unfolding to us in these opening chapters who he has come to see now Jesus was. Who he sees Jesus after the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit has fallen upon the church. Matthew, as well as all the other apostles, has time now to reflect and to be nurtured in his own heart and mind, being taught by the Spirit of God, helping him to come to understand who Jesus really was. And in these opening chapters, Matthew is laying that out for us. Then he says in Matthew chapter 4 in verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You notice that little phrase in verse 17, From that time. This is a turning point in Matthew's record of the life of Jesus. From this time, something new begins to happen. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus is born. Uh, Jesus has uh, grown up to be a man. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus has settled himself in the northern region of Galilee, around Zebulun and Naphtali, and he is ready to begin his public ministry. And that's what begins to happen in chapter 4, in verse 17. And we have a section in the letter that really stretches all the way from chapter 4, verse 17, all the way up to chapter 16, another turning point. So I want you to look over there, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 in verse 21. Matthew chapter 16 in verse 21. It says in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. From that time. There are only two places in the entire gospel of Matthew that that phrase occurs from that time. It occurs in chapter 4, verse 17. It occurs again here in chapter 16, in verse 21. And it is another very clear turning point in Matthew's presentation of Jesus. Up to chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew has presented to us the person of Jesus. 
He is under the firm conviction that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, he's not the kind of Messiah that everybody was probably waiting for. In fact, his Messiahship is rather surprising to many. He is a Messiah who will save from sin. He's a Messiah who threatens worldly kingdoms. He's a Messiah who overturns ethnic views of superiority. He's a Messiah who calls the self-righteous to repentance. He is a Messiah in those opening chapters of Matthew who introduces a spiritual, not necessarily a physical kingdom. As he says to Pilate later on in John's gospel, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. It's another worldly kind of kingdom. Jesus is the kind of Messiah that sets up his home base, not in Jerusalem in the south, but rather in Galilee in the north, reaching the Gentile nations with light. But he is a Messiah nonetheless. And then from chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus is proclaimed. Jesus is proclaimed and presented by Matthew as the Messiah. Climaxing or culminating in our text today in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. But let me just tell you a little more about what happens in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 16, verse 21. In those chapters, Jesus is being proclaimed as the Messiah but he's not fully understood to be the Messiah just yet. There are many reactions to Jesus in these particular chapters, in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way up to chapter 16. In chapter 4, verse 25, there are large crowds that begin to follow him. Jesus had quite the entourage, not just in his 12 disciples that were coming around him, but he had all, he had all kinds of fanboys and fangirls that would kind of come along with him. He was quite popular. People wanted to see what this man was doing. He was healing all who were oppressed and afflicted. And if you heard that somebody just a couple doors down here was literally and actually healing people, you might get up and leave today. I don't know. Uh, that would draw quite the, the attention of the masses. In chapter 7 and verse 28, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one having authority, not as their scribes and their Pharisees. Imagine what it was like to sit under the scribes and Pharisees of the day. People knew their hypocrisy. They knew that they lacked authority. They knew that they lacked power. They, they probably went and listened to them anyway, or maybe some of them just shrugged them off. But Jesus was different. Jesus taught as one who had authority. Jesus taught as one who had power. In chapter 9 and verse 8 in this section again, the crowds were awestruck and glorified God because they had given, God had given such authority to men. They saw his authority, they saw his power, not just as something that was generated by a life of integrity. I mean, that would be one thing, wouldn't it? If you had a, a man who, who lived a life of integrity, and by, by virtue of living that life of integrity, he kind of won for himself the hearing. He won for himself uh, an opportunity to be listened to by people. We all want to listen to a person who has integrity in their speech. But they saw Jesus as having more than that. They saw Jesus as having power given by God. And then in chapter 9, in verse 26, it says that news began to spread about all that he had done. Again, in 9.31, the news was continuing to spread. 9.33, the crowds were amazed. And in chapter 13, in verse 54, it says they were astonished at his wisdom and his miraculous powers. All the way in chapter 15, verse 31, it says the crowd was marveling. There's a growing sense of anticipation in these chapters about who Jesus really is, but they, they still don't quite get all that there is about him. There is what I would say kind of a, a growing ascendancy in their understanding of Jesus and his person and his work. Now this culminates 
This culminates for us in um, chapter 16 in verses 13 to 20. Let me take you there briefly, and we're going to come back and do a more thorough look at this here, Lord willing, in a moment. But I want to show you what happens in Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 to 20, where Simon Peter, or Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, makes a statement about Jesus that is so emphatic and is so clear and perhaps even unexpected. But it's so common to us to hear it that we don't, we don't notice that Matthew's been building to something. I was to ask you if Jesus was the Messiah, probably 99.9% .9 of you would say, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Do you realize at this particular point, up to this particular point in the book, there is no one who has verbally spoken, you are the Christ. No one has said it. Now, Matthew has said it, by reflecting back on what he's come to know about Jesus. In Matthew 1 to 4, he said Jesus is the Messiah several times. But it's not a dialogue. It's not, it's not like public speech. But here in chapter 16, in verse 16, Simon Peter, Simon Peter says, or Simon Peter answers to the question that's given in verse 15, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At no point up to this point has it been stated so emphatically. And at no point again will it be stated so clearly, especially by someone who believes it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe when we come to Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 to 20, and in particular this verse in verse 16, we have reached the theological apex the theological high point of the book. I remember back about six or seven weeks ago when I began to think that, and I thought, is that really, is that really right? And as I read more and more and more, I thought, you know, that's, I think that's exactly what's, what's going on. R.T. France, in his book, his commentary on this particular text, makes this comment. This was refreshing and helpful for me. Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah forms the climax of, to the long section of the gospel, which began back in chapter 4 in verse 17 with Jesus' public teaching in Galilee. And I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson yesterday. I found a sermon by him on this text. I thought, that will be good to listen to. We'll listen to Sinclair. This is, to Ferguson, the preeminent point, the superior apex of the letter of Matthew in other words, everything prior to this has been building to this. It has been ascending in clarity. It's been ascending in importance. This is, I don't want to say the ground zero. That seems to make it kind of level lower. I, I want to think in terms more like a mountain. We've been climbing this, this high mountain, and we're finally at the peak. And what that tells me, though, is... As I begin to move down the hill, things are going to, in some sense, descend. Now, in our outline, we have uh, been building to this point, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 16, where Matthew has been presenting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he begins to show the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 16, verse 21, it is a proclamation of ascendancy. Things are moving up. But now at this point, in chapter 16, verse 21, where it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. At this point, the proclamation of Christ begins to descend. And it's going to descend all the way to the cross. Let me just walk you through a few things in this particular section here. Now, if you're, again, if you're still working on that outline and you're looking at your page and you're thinking, okay, what is the first point in the outline? The first point is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 16, where Matthew proclaims the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus as he understands him. 
And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, we have the presentation or the proclamation of the person of Christ. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 16, verse 12, it is a proclamation of ascendancy going to that high apex point where Jesus is declared by Peter in 1616, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in chapter 16, verse 21, there is a continuing proclamation of Jesus, but it's in a descent. And it stretches from chapter 16, verse 21, all the way to chapter 26, verse 1. Let me take you there for a moment. Chapter 26 in verse 1. In chapter 26, in verse 1, Jesus says this, When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, And the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. We've come down to this point. We're now two days, two days before the cross. We have gone from this apex, this glorious mountaintop in chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, where Jesus has been declared to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, all the way down to chapter 26, the opening verses where Jesus is two days away from the cross. Now, I've said this this move, this move from 1621 down to 26.1 or 2, is a movement of descent going down to the cross. And I want you to see how how Matthew does this. Matthew, Matthew accomplishes this descent, this taking us down toward the cross by repeating not, not simply a, a set phrase, but by repeating an idea four different times. And I want to show you where those, where those repetitions are. Go back, if you would, to chapter 16 in verse 21. Chapter 16, verse 21. We've read this already, but I want you to, to hear the, the connections between these phrases. Chapter 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. I believe it's the Gospel of Luke that talks about Jesus making a turn at one point and setting his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus says this, It's following the section that we're going to come back and look at in a moment, chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, this apex, this high point. And that event in chapter 16, 13 to 20, takes place in an area known as Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is, it's like the farthest north you could possibly go and still be in territory that might be considered Israel or Palestine. In the day. If you remember the tribes that were broken up, the 12 tribes of Israel, there was the tribe of Dan, and the tribe of Dan was in the far reaches of the north, and that's where Caesarea Philippi is. It's a remote area, and he probably goes to this area, in a sense, to kind of get away from everything, where all these people are following him, they're, they're wanting to hear him, and they're in awe of all his miracles and things he's doing. He goes to this remote, almost like a retreat location with his 12 apostles. And it's just him and them there in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And it's from this point that, yes, physically there's a descent. It's a a high and elevated region there in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, They begin to physically make a descent back toward Jerusalem Spiritually speaking and theologically speaking, there is a descent moving from this apex, this high theological declaration, to the cross where he is crucified for sinners. So it says in verse 21 that from that time he began to show his disciples that the cross is coming. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed. And then I'm sure the part of this that they didn't even probably even listen to. And I'm going to be raised. (laughs) They're probably still stuck with the idea of being killed. In fact, that's really what Peter sees and what Peter hears. Because remember the next verse in verse 22? 
Peter hears that and says, God forbid it, Lord. That shall never happen to you. What? Being raised? No. Being put to death. I'm not going to kill you. That's not going to happen. We're not going to let it happen. I mean, Peter's aggression, you can kind of hear it coming through. Remember, it was Peter in the garden, wasn't it, that took that sword, cut off some guy's ear, probably going for his head, just not a very good swordsman, you know, put a, put a sword in a fisherman's hand, and that's what you get. You don't get, you know, you just get a guy with a lopped off ear. Notice chapter 17. Chapter 17, look over in verse 22. Jesus has just healed a man. And it says in 17.22, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Again, they're probably only hearing the part about him being killed. They're deeply grieved. Did you not hear? I said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But first you said you're going to die. That's what they're hearing. Flip over again. Chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 17. <clears throat> now for the third time in this movement of descent coming from this apex point in chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, we hear in chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. We're, we're getting closer, right? We begin in Caesarea Philippi. Then we're down in Galilee proper, now we're about to go to Jerusalem. It says he took the 12 disciples aside. And this is very important. He is speaking very pointedly to his men. This is not a sermon. He's not speaking to the crowds. He is speaking to these men who are his special disciples. He takes the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. There's one final movement in this descent, and it's in chapter 26. We read it just a moment ago. Chapter 26 and verse 1, it says that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, it's eminent, it's here, it's just a few days away. In 48 hours, men, Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. This is the low point. We have finished at this point the proclamation or the preaching about Jesus. Now, that's not to say there's nothing said about Jesus in the next couple of chapters. There is. But everything in the final section of the book focuses on Matthew's presentation of the passion of Christ. And that takes us all the way to the end of chapter 28. So he begins speaking about the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus that he himself, as an apostle, had come to know. He's come to know this Jesus. He's come to know who he is. He's come to know him and see him as the Messiah. And we move from that point to consider the idea that this Jesus whom Matthew came to know as the Messiah was proclaimed. He was preached about. He himself preached. And this takes the bulk of the book from chapter 4, verse 17, all the way down to chapter 26 in the opening verses. And that proclamation encompasses both a proclamation of ascendancy, a proclamation moving up to this high point of declaration of Peter, and a proclamation of descending note all the way down to the cross. And then he follows or finishes up his book or his presentation, his gospel regarding the passion of, of this Christ. Now, with that large structure in mind to kind of kind of key us in on that central section, I want to take us back there to chapter 16 once again. So turn with me if you would to Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 20. Now, you should know in a sense where we are physically 
We're in Caesarea Philippi. We're in the far northern regions of the area that is occupied by the Jews. But we're even north in the most northern regions of Galilee of the Gentiles. He's pressing. He's, he's, he's moving even further north into that Gentile region. Physically, this gives us some kind of you know, bearing on where we are. But theologically, it should key in your mind that Jesus has chosen this great northern region that borders the nations. He's chosen this place for a very particular purpose that he'll begin to unfold in these verses. Let's just read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples. He warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked at Zerubbabel in the book of Haggai and in the book of Zechariah, we saw that Zerubbabel was a messianic figure who was charged with the task of laying a foundation for the temple and was charged with the task of building the temple. Zerubbabel, a messianic figure, a foundation layer, and a temple builder. What I would present to you today is that Jesus is the full picture and the full realization of what Zerubbabel served as a type for. Zerubbabel was not the one who was the true Messiah. Zerubbabel was not the one who would lay the foundation for the final temple of God. And Zerubbabel was not the final builder of God's final temple. That task, that designation would fall to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that is what's happening in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Here, Jesus is shown to be by open confession of Peter and the whole apostolic band. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will lay a foundation for the temple, and he is the one who will build a temple in which God will dwell for the glory of his name and the good of of all nations. Well, let's consider this for just a moment. I want you to consider the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. The person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. Secondly, I want you to consider with me the nature of the church as a temple. The nature of the church as a temple. And finally, I want us to consider the mission of the church in preaching the gospel to the nations. So if I lost you in that previous outline, my apologies about the whole book, let's see if we can narrow it down to these three things. I want you to consider with me the person and work of Jesus as the Messiah, the nature of the church as a temple, and the mission of the church in preaching the gospel to the nations. I think for a moment about the person and work of Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew has been laboring long and hard to demonstrate and to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. I think with me quickly, as, as we move through the book of Matthew itself, another time from a different vantage point to consider and to hear 
What does Matthew say about the Messiah? What does he say about the Christ? When I say the Christ and when I say the Messiah, I'm simply meaning the same thing. All right? So when you read in your New Testament, you read in Matthew there, it says Jesus is the Christ, or some trans, sometimes it translates the Messiah. It's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Messiah, Matthew has said that he is the one whom all Jewish history points toward in chapter 1 and verse 17 when he says there that there are 14 generations from here, 14 generations here, 14 generations to the coming of the Messiah. That opening genealogy that Lord willing will unpack next Lord's Day. The idea is that all of history, everything for the Jews is moving forward from Abraham through David all the way to Jesus. He is the terminal point for the genealogy of the nation. As the Messiah, he is the one to whom all Jewish history is pointing. One of the things they say that is very unique about a Christian view of history is shared by Judaism. We hold to a linear view of history. We don't have a cyclical view. We don't have this idea that you're going to live for a while and come back as a dog or a cow or a fly or whatever. We don't believe in reincarnation. We think things have a beginning. Things have an ending. God is eternal over all time, but we are moving forward. History does not, in this sense, repeat itself. It may feel sometimes like history repeats itself. You probably said that to yourself this week in your own life. I feel like we do the same thing every week, all right? Well, there's a sense in which it feels like that, but it's not. It's new. And in fact, God is moving you forward in the gospel and progressing you in sanctification, coming from what you were to what you will be. In Jewish history, it is linear. It is moving forward. And the Jews are always looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. In fact, even today, even today, while wars rage in Israel, many are longing for the return of a Messiah to come and affirm them in their own self-righteousness and put an end to all the sin of the Arab nations around them. What a tragedy we see these days on the news. But in fact, it's the same thing that's been going on for thousands of years. You just happen to see it now on your phone, and it seems tragic to you. And it is tragic. But it's not the result of one righteous nation and other sinful nations because all have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need to be looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, the good news of the gospel is that Messiah has what? He has come. As the Messiah, Matthew presents Jesus as one who threatens the kingdoms of men. The moment that Herod heard about this king who had been born, the king of the Jews, he assembles all the religious leaders and says, I want to know where the Messiah was born so that I might go and worship him. Right. I don't think so. He wanted to kill him, which is very clear from the next chapter where he begins to kill all infants two years and younger. Matthew presents Jesus as a Messiah who raises the very hopes of the nation. John and those who would follow him, John is in prison, but he sends his men to Jesus and says, are you the what? Remember what he called Jesus? Are you the expected one? In other words, we've been looking for somebody. When John comes on the scene, it is like many in, in the Jewish world are sitting on the edge of their seats looking for the coming of the Messiah. And John wants to know, are you him? Remember, some people ask John that question. Are you the Messiah? John's like, I'm not the Messiah. John points people to Jesus, like Matthew does as well. As the Messiah, Matthew says that Jesus holds the keys of the kingdom of God in Matthew 16, verse 16. As the Messiah, he is both David's son and David's Lord in Matthew 22, verse 42. As Messiah, he alone is the true teacher and leader of his people in Matthew 23, verse 10. As the Messiah, Matthew says that Jesus will mislead none, and all of his works are true. As the Messiah, Matthew says in Matthew 26, verse 63, that Jesus is the Son of God. Or as the Messiah, also known as the Son of Man, in Matthew 26, 64, it says that Jesus is the one who ascends on the cloud to heaven to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom that will never end. And in Matthew 27, and verse 22, says that Jesus is the Messiah who is put to death 
for sinners. Who do you say that I am? I love that line by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Who do you say that Jesus is? He's either what? He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is in fact Lord. Lewis says in a way that only Lewis probably could, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. You ever had somebody say that to you? Maybe you've said that. Maybe you're saying that today. Ah, Jesus is a great moral teacher. Lewis says, but I don't accept this, this, this personifying this person, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level... <laughs> on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious, Lewis adds, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange and terrifying or unlikely it may seem, seem I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that Jesus is? How would you answer the question that Jesus posed to the disciples? Who do you say that Jesus is? Don't say he's just a good man because he claimed to be God. Good men don't claim to be God. Men who claim to be God and aren't God, they're either liars or they're just nuts. When I read the scripture, I see the words of Christ as true. When I see the works and the life of Christ, I see the life of one who is very sane. I conclude and I confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And friend, if you are here today, young person, older person, and you have any conclusion other than Jesus is the Christ, then you are without hope and without God in the world. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This, this, this declaration that Peter makes is, is, is not any kind of kudos for Peter. It's no praise to Peter. It's no attaboy to Peter. Way to go, Peter. You're like the smartest of all people that ever lived on the planet. Matthew chapter 16 says, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friend, if you cannot see that Jesus is the Christ, then you need to fall before the God of heaven and ask him for eyes to see and ears to hear, because you can't get there from here on your own. You'll never see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked and lived and died and was raised again. You'll just think he must be making it up. You'll just think it must just be a crazy scheme. I confess to you that I believe it is indeed the truth from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God, which by God's grace I have no doubt when I confess I'm not saying you have to have no doubts. Oh, <laughs> I'm not saying I never have doubts about things. I do. But about that confession, by God's grace, I do not. I confess it with absolute clarity and fullness in my person. 
He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't it good news, though? Listen, don't miss this. Isn't it good news, though, that in the kingdom, God has room for us when we struggle and when we doubt? I mean, for crying out loud, one of the apostles was known as what? Doubting Thomas. If my mom's listening today, she's probably going to get after me later for saying, for crying out loud. My wife might get after me too, kind of like my kids do sometimes when I say, holy cow. There are no holy cows, Dad. Okay, well, anyway, the point being, you get my point. Brothers and sisters, if you struggle at times with your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not alone. And that does not mean that you're lost. I say to you, continue to hold to Christ even through your doubts, and confess that doubt to him and say, oh, Lord, help me. What is that? Isn't that a great text in the Bible where the guy says, Lord, I what? Listen, he confessed to Jesus. He's looking at Jesus, says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Friend, if that is you today, confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to grant you more faith that you might believe in him and love him even more fully. We want to consider the person and work of Jesus as the Messiah here in the confession of Peter, but we also want to confess the nature of the church as a temple. It says in verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, I say to you, Peter, that you, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I am not a Roman Catholic. I am a Protestant. But I have no problem believing that Jesus was speaking here about Peter. We run from this passage, we're scared of this passage, we don't like this passage, so we come up with all kinds of ways to argue that Jesus surely can't be talking about Peter. Surely Peter can't be the rock upon which Jesus founds the church. Well, I think he can be. I think it's the most natural reading of the passage. And it clearly is supported by other places in the Bible Peter and the apostles along with him have a function in the church that is second to none. Well, I suppose they're second to Christ, but second to none in this realm of men that we are in. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, turns and says to Peter, and says to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And we come up with all kinds of ways that this might have been happening. Maybe Jesus was talking to Peter and says, Peter, upon this rock, like Jesus is you know, pointing to himself, Peter, whose name, by the way, means what? Rock, Petros, right? He says, Petros, upon this Petra, I'll build my church. So people make a big distinction between Petra and Petros. They'll say Petra is a big giant rock and Petros is a little bitty piece of a rock. And so Peter's just a little bitty rock and Jesus is the big rock. Um, I don't think you have to do that. It's a, it's a strange way to read the passage. It requires us to imagine what Jesus might have been doing physically when he spoke. Peter, upon this rock, pointing back to himself. Well, the text doesn't say he points to himself. There would have been other ways to have done that. It also makes us make a real clear distinction between Petra, the big rock, and Petros, the little rock, which historical texts just really won't let us do. These words are often used historically interchangeably. Third, it fails to take into consideration the fact that Jesus couldn't say, Petra, on this Petra, I'll build my rock, because Peter's a what? Peter lived in a day when men were still men and women were still women. Peter's a man. Therefore, you can't refer to Peter as Petra because that's the girl form of the rock word. It's not real technical jargon I just used there. But you can't call Peter a Petra. That would be awkward. Peter is a Petros. 
He is a boy. It's most natural, I think, here in the text to read this as Jesus is making a statement about Peter. Peter has already made a statement about Jesus. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus is going to make a statement about Peter. You are the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. Now again, some of you probably right now are like, you know, oh, I'm really nervous right now. What's, what's happening here? Well, don't get nervous, all right? There is no way, by the way, there is no way that you get from Matthew 16 to a pope and papal supremacy at all, unless you just say that's what it's about. There's nothing about a pope here. There's nothing about Rome here. There's nothing about Leo here. Leo, by the way, the 5th century Pope of Rome in the middle 5th century, Leo declared that this verse was about the papacy. It's one of the first times that I can find in the history of Christianity that this verse is applied to show papal supremacy. You can't, you can't do that. You can't just take a verse and say, it's about me. When there's no evidence at all that it's about the Pope in Rome. They couldn't have been much further away from Rome. I suppose they could have been like in Asia or something like, like Eastern Asia. There's nothing about the Pope here. And for the first 400 years of the church, nobody tried to say there was something about the Pope here. All right. Um, but in the 5th century, Leo wanted to substantiate his claim to primacy. And so he found a verse that he thought made that argument. Look at a couple other places with me. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We've got to be kind of quick here. I don't simply want to assert, but I do want to kind of give you some things you can kind of think about and, and consider. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20. Let's back to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. The context here, he's speaking to the Gentiles, and he says that because you're in Christ, you are fellow citizens with the saints, the Jews. The Gentiles and Jews have been brought together into this one new man. And it says in verse 20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, this is going to take us back to like Psalm 118, the one we read earlier. This is why Ryan was emphasizing that text. I emphasized that text because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And that cornerstone sets the whole frame for the building. But the apostles and prophets of the early church here also form this foundation. Look over Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, it says this in verse, well, in verses 10 to 14, we'll read this, but this is about the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is a picture of the church coming down out of heaven. And it says in verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, these are just a couple of images. One's a statement in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's an image in this vision of John in Revelation chapter 21, picturing the church as being founded upon the apostles. This is not to take away from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is simply to say that Christ himself being the cornerstone and his apostles being joined to him, they serve the function of grounding the church. The nature of the church as a temple is seen in the fact that it has a foundation, a foundation that is indeed unshakable, and it is a building or a structure that is being constructed by Christ himself. If we look back in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, it is his church, it is his ecclesia, it is his assembly, it is his congregation. It's not just like the old assembly, that word ecclesia there in uh, Matthew 16, verse, uh, verse 18. I will build my church. That's the New Testament word for church, ecclesia or ecclesia. 
It is used prolifically in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to point to the assembly, the congregation of the people of God. And he says, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my assembly. It's not just like the old assembly. It's got some sense of continuity with it. We've seen this imagery from Zerubbabel to Christ, type and anti-type. It's got some kind of a connection. But it's not just like the old. It's my church, my ecclesia. I am going to build it. Interestingly, our own confession says in chapter 26 in paragraph 3 that Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession of his name. Old Testament saints who looked to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and New Testament saints that trust the Lord Jesus Christ, they're all part of what? They're all part of this ecclesia. They're all part of this assembly. You, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are grounded upon Christ and his apostles, and you are being placed into this new temple. Peter gives that glorious image in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're like living stones being placed into this new temple of God. And if we go back to Ephesians 2 again, we'll see that this temple is being constructed, that God, by his spirit, might dwell within it. This is the privilege we have as God's people to be this new temple the Lord Jesus Christ is building. One final thing to notice here, and we'll be done. Consider thirdly, not just about the person of Jesus as the Messiah and the church that he is building as a temple, but consider the final thing in this particular text, the mission of the church, preaching the gospel to the nations. Notice back in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus continues to speak to Peter about Peter. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, that may not be the way your translation reads. That's the New American Standard. If you have a King James or an ESV, it may be a little bit different, but I believe this is the best way to read this particular text that the decisions of binding and loosing that are made on earth simply reflect the decisions that have already been made in heaven about binding and loosing. Heaven is not waiting on Peter and the apostles, or us, frankly, for that matter. And this whole idea of binding and loosing, if you just look over in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, this is a text we usually read about church discipline. The same idea, Matthew 18, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is not just something Peter does. This is something the apostles do. This is something we as the church, the assembly of God, we have these, we use the phrase you might be more familiar with, the keys of the kingdom. Right now, Collins Catechism. Okay, somebody's giving me the either knock-knock joke or yes, this is yes. Okay, thank you. So, let me just read to you this statement out of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and the Christian and Christian discipline toward repentance, both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does the preaching of the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise and true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, when by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest upon them. God's judgment, both in this life and the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Let me ask you one more time, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Friend, if you say he is anything other than the Christ, the Messiah of God, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the one who has come to set God's people free from sin and death and hell, the one who has come to be the rightful ruler, the son of David over God's people, and the one who has come as the son of Abraham to bring the blessing of God to the nations, if you have a different Christ or a different view of Jesus than that, then in the proclamation of the gospel today, in the use of the keys, the kingdom to you is shut. You will never get in until you come to confess with Peter, 
with the apostles, with the church, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you believe that today, brother and sister or friend, the kingdom in the preaching of the gospel is wide open to you today. Come. Come. Be reconciled to God by the Messiah, the son of David, your rightful king, the son of Abraham, the only one in whom you will ever be truly blessed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his messiahship, that he is indeed the one who has come to rescue your people. We thank you that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham, our king, our blesser. We thank you that he has indeed founded a church of which he is the chief stone of the corner, upon which his apostles have been joined to him and made a sure and solid foundation for the church for ages to come. Oh, and we thank you that we have been given a gospel. We have been given good news about Jesus by which we might proclaim that for all peoples to hear, starting in this room and reaching to the ends of the earth. By your grace and for your glory, might you help us here. In Jesus' name.